We begin the news of September 24 with this piece on government control. There is scarcely a word in the language more objectionable to the people at large than compulsion. We are told that in a free country, and especially as applied to education, it is an anomaly and that the state has no right to compel parents to educate their children and that, if it does, it is an act of tyranny. This piece of news from the Gundagai Times in New South Wales. For September 24, 1880, this was the news. This was the news is a fortnightly podcast that takes the news from this date many years ago and shares it with you in one news bulletin. I'm Roderick Matthews, bringing you the stories from a time when compulsory behaviours were forced on people by tyrannical government. Welcome to another bulletin of This Was The News. This week, stories are coming to us from the year 1880. It's right, it's September 24, but it's 140 years ago. The article that we started the piece with was talking about compulsory education being enforced on the people of the New South Wales colony. And quite an interesting thing to think about now when you consider how important education is to us all as a society. But at that time there was debate. And I'm going to continue the article now as it goes through this debate. We think we are safe in assuming that whatever crime may be raised against the enforcement of the compulsory clauses of the Public Instruction Act, they will, in time, come to be regarded as a blessing to the colony. I think we can probably say that now. Most people value education as a blessing, although sometimes we see behaviours that think people don't necessarily value what their education taught them. But the article continues and starts to argue the case against it. We are, of course, aware that there are many and weighty arguments which can be urged against a system of compulsory education, but we think that in a colony like New South Wales, there are peculiar reasons in favour of giving the system a fair trial. The advocates of denominational education are, as a rule, opposed to the compulsory system, arguing that if a boy is allowed to grow up without any education at all, he'll probably become a cattle duffer, and, if he has a particularly strong strain of the criminal element in him, probably end up off with bushranging. In fact, follow a career very similar to Ned Kelly's. But that, if he be given a purely secular education, he'll probably turn out, instead of a bushranger, a forger or something of that class. That's right, folks, if you don't have a bit of religion in your education, you're still going to turn out a criminal, but a less dangerous criminal. Hmm. The article continues. We know for a certainty that ignorance begets crime, and the effect of a compulsory education would be worth trying, if only as an experiment. The Department of Public Instruction is at present engaged in arranging for bringing the compulsory clause of the Act into operation. But Sir John Robertson has rightly decided to proceed as mildly as possible to in the first instance, at least use persuasion rather than compulsion. With this view, the officers have been instructed to proceed at once to make the necessary inquiries and endeavour to induce parents to send their children to school. And, should there be found any cases requiring the aid of the law courts, 
they will first be brought under the notice of the minister, who will direct the course to be adopted. As soon as the clause has got well into working order in Sydney and other centres of population, we think its operation might, with advantage, be extended to the Gundagai district. There are, knocking about this district, many youths who would be much better at school. Can't imagine that would be an easy transition from just lazing about to being forced into school by the government. It would certainly be a new normal to get used to. Moving on to local news now, and this piece in the Narracourt Herald continues with some interesting stories about schools and, look, it calls it amusing, but that might depend on your sense of humour here or whether there is any humour in this. I'll read the article. An amusing incident happened the other day in connection with the inspection of some of the city model schools by the Mayor and Corporation of Adelaide. The Mayor, with his usual generosity, dispensed many good things to the children, including about 4,000 oranges grown in his own gardens in the eastern suburbs. The joke was in connection with this fruit, and some of the same kind as tempted Adam to his fall. One of the councillors went round to the different schools, extolling the liberality of the mayor and telling the children how happy they should be with all the apple and oranges which his worship had given them. It is less than a week since this gentleman repeated this little speech, but since then several poor children have been punished for following the example of the mighty councillor who spoke a few words and ruined their faith in their teachers and in their ability to place their H's where they should be. The mayor was so pleased at the exercise of aspirates that he intends offering a handsome prize for the councillor who can drop most and pick them up without observation. The competition is likely to be keen. An interesting joke there, dropping and picking up H's. Doesn't sound particularly hilarious. Meanwhile, while we're talking about dropping letters, this piece in The Age on the delivery services of some of the steamers on our oceans. The difference between the subsidised service of the P&O company and the Orient Line is strongly brought out in the following communication received by a mercantile firm of this city from a London merchant by the last mail and dated 13 August. We received our letters per Cotopaxi on the 5th August and those by the P&O Company's steamer via Brindisi, bearing date seven days earlier, were not delivered until the 9th August, making the difference of time of transit 10 or 11 days. This is the fourth occasion within two months in which the Homewood mails by the Orient Line have been delivered earlier than, or simultaneously, with the mails from the Brindisi, which left Adelaide from six to eight days before them. Yes, we worry about slow mail now, considering the uh, state Australia Post is in, but having to wait for all those ships coming by sea is a completely different matter. Speaking of ocean liners, this piece in the Sydney Morning Herald talks about the wreckage that was being washed ashore from the American ship Eric the Red. Yesterday and the day before, a considerable amount of miscellaneous cargo was secured by a number of persons who were busily employed, we are informed, grabbing all the flotsam and jetsam. The stuff from the American ship Eric the Red consisted of perfumery, Bristol's sarsaparilla, buggy fittings, cutlery, axe handles, hay forks, Wheeler and Wilson sewing machines and general Yankee notions. 
Somewhere in the inaccessible fastness of the coastline, the knowing ones were saying that one lucky finder carted away from the beach over a tonne of tobacco, where he intends keeping it until things get quiet. One gentleman saw a lot of men hauling up a sewing machine, he informed us, which was perfect, including hammers, binders, screwdrivers and needle sharpeners. The cliffs underneath which this cargo is being drifted are precipitous bluffs from 60 feet to 100 feet high, with scarcely any beach below, and the men who lower their mates have to watch the rollers attentively in case of an accident. As it was, a couple of men were nearly swept out to sea on Thursday, having to swim for some time before they regained foothold. Finally, to finish off the local news, this short piece from the town of Yelta, reported in York's Peninsula Advertiser. I really can't find anything to write about from here. The people are like the place, very dull. I hear that a ghost has been seen near the Yelta mine wood heap, but this will do for another letter. And with that, let's take a short break. Can I dine? At the John Bull, 14 Little Collins Street West. Indian curries different every day, such as Indian officers approve. Scotch pearl barley broth, such as Scottish men pronounce nay bad. Pure Sauvignon, such as brilliant Savarin would like. And above all, such prompt attention and civility as all old gentlemen like. Add perfect cleanliness and variety of condiments, etc. Try John Bull. All who come once, come twice. Especially Cockneys, who enjoy our London Porter and cease to lament Temple Bar. An Irish gentleman, having purchased an alarm clock, an acquaintance asked him what he intended to do with it. Och, answered he, sure I've nothing to do but pull the string and wake myself. For it's happy days I've found since I am certain of keeping my appointments, catching train, meeting friends and visitors at the station, and my mind is relieved from great care since I've had my watch and clocks cleaned and made as accurate as the post office clock. C.E. Prescott, 17 Lonsdale Street West, four doors above Hawkins Hotel, offering first-class watches, clocks and jewellery at fully 25% less than obtainable elsewhere. Back to the news story now. Usually when we find the news of the day from many years ago, there's themes running through the newspaper. But there wasn't too much this time. It didn't seem like much was going on. There was a little bit of upheaval with the Chinese in Hong Kong. Ned Kelly was about to be moved from Beechworth to Melbourne to undergo trial, but there wasn't much to report there. But there was plenty to report in other crimes, and there was certainly a lot of that filling the papers all over the place. From the Argus in Melbourne, this piece on a raid on gamblers. A number of youths were charged with playing games of cards forbidden by law. Constable McGee gave evidence to the effect that on Saturday night, he went with Constable Pace to the Builders Arms Hotel in Gertrude Street. He was in plain clothes. He went into the billiard room and soon after saw the defendants go in. The men aroused his suspicions, and after consultation with Constable Pace, he went into the room where the defendants were, and found them playing cards. 
In reply to witness, defendants admitted that they were playing poker. The witness joined in the game for a short time and lost. He saw the defendants placing money on the game and they were also betting. Mr Lyons, who appeared for the defence, contended that it had not been proved that the defendants were playing an unlawful game and the bench decided to dismiss the case. Which I think is probably fair enough in this case. It sounds like the cops only charged him because they lost the poker match. Meanwhile, from the evening news in Sydney, larrikinism in the park. A correspondent asks us to give publicity to the fact that it is impossible to make use of the seats in Victoria Park in the evening without being annoyed by mobs of young larrikins, apparently of the age of from 10 to 15 years, who roam all over that reserve, carrying missiles of every description, which they deliberately throw full in the faces of people whom they may meet with. It is a shameful thing that respectable people have their lives endangered in this manner. The presence of a policeman occasionally after dusk would, I think, have a wholesome effect. From petty crime in Victoria Park, though, to something a bit more serious in Fitzroy, which was reported in the Sydney Daily Telegraph. At five o'clock on Saturday evening, Sergeant Rennie of Fitzroy succeeded in arresting a German named Henry Soet and in seizing a large number of forged banknotes. It appears that the man, who looks about 40 years of age and has the air of a quiet, respectable bushman, went into several shops in Brunswick Street, Fitzroy, and purchased small articles, tendering in payment in each case a one-pound note, and receiving change. From Mr Albert T. Best, the chemist, he purchased a bottle of perfume, the price of which was two and six, and the change of 17 shillings and sixpence being given to the prison in silver. Now, it might not sound much forging a one-pound note, but in today's money, that would be over $150. So, it's not a bad deal, really. The article continues, stating that Henry Seward also paid a visit to the establishment of Mr Tobin, a draper of Brunswick Street, who, after receiving the note, became suspicious and sent it to the Fitzroy Watch House for inspection. Sergeant Rennie at once forwarded the note to the Fitzroy Branch, Bank of Victoria, and went himself in search of the man. He found him at the corner of Brunswick Street in the act of trying to pass another one-pound note. On being accosted by the officer prisoner, he told him, with some indignation, that doubts were being expressed as to the genuineness of his money. In reply to a question, he said that he had two or three more notes about him, which he believed to be good. Sergeant Rennie arrested him and took him to the watch house, where the messenger soon returned from the bank with the intelligence that the note with which he had been sent was a photographic copy of a genuine note. The man was then searched when similar notes representing a total sum of £2,129 were found upon him. Yeah, so we're talking almost four dollars to $500,000 worth that was found upon him in forged notes. These notes consisted of 194 £10 notes, all of the number 4719, and 189 £1 notes, all numbered 488523. It's possibly a little difficult to get away with it when all your notes have the same serial number. But this man had tried his best to commit the fraudery, as the article continues on to say. 
Some of these notes were lying flat and new in the man's pocket, but the greater portion were crumpled up in fours and thrust into the foot of a stocking, which he carried in a side coat pocket. Those that the prisoner had succeeded in passing had the appearance of having been well worn and were skilfully torn at the corners as if from long service. After the discovery of the notes, the prisoner unreservedly admitted that they were copies obtained by means of photography. Yes, not not a photocopy, but actual photography of these notes. The prisoner stated that he had been a farmer at Hamilton, where he still had a wife and three children residing, but that he sold his farm about 12 months ago. Since that time, he followed the occupation of a travelling photographer, which art he had recently learned, and had lately been in the neighbourhood of Ballarat. It was at the latter place that he effected the forgeries. He declared that this was the first time he had attempted anything of the kind, and that he had only commenced to utter the notes on the day of his arrest. The police are inclined to believe this is the man's first attempt in such a direction. The six one-pound notes which he passed are traced, and up to the present no other cases have been brought to light. He does not appear to have had sufficient courage to venture on trying to dispose of one of the ten-pound notes. An active search for fresh cases or for any trace of accomplice is of course being instituted by the police. You can see why our notes have got so complicated in the plastic banknotes we had today, considering that uh, people have been trying to forge them since over a hundred years ago. Now I'm sure that man would have had his day in court. And we finish all these crime stories with the court reports as seen in the record in Emerald Hill and Sandwich Advertiser, Victoria. Drunk. John Cobbs pleaded guilty to having been drunk, but as it was his first appearance in the role of an inebriate, and as he faithfully promised that it would be his last, he was discharged. I feel like I've heard those sorts of promises many a time before from those who are hungover. Meanwhile, in another case, this of neighbourly amenities... Mary Mullinger was complained of by Mary Willis for ins- Mary Mullinger was complained of by Mary Willis for using insulting words towards her, and the latter, named Polly, also sued the former, mentioned pretty Polly with having used naughty words towards her. Mrs Mullinger, on last Thursday week, designated Mrs Willis a Crimsonian and decayed soiled dove. At any rate, so declared Mrs Willis, and a female friend of hers. Of course, the parties to the suit were neighbours, and resided in Williams Lane, and had been dear friends previously. The cross summons disclosed the fact that Mrs Willis gave it as her unbiased opinion that Mrs Mullinger was a canine animal of the female denomination, and the poisoner of her infant. Both cases were dismissed. You have to love the uh, profanity that was used at the time, back in 1880. And speaking of profanity, this last one is on exactly that. William Wiseman is an instance of the old saying, what's in a name? William proved himself to be anything but a wise man by getting into the clutches of the police. Wiseman was accused of using exceedingly profane language and was fined 10 shillings or 48 hours imprisonment. And with all that bad language over now, let's have a short break. Reduction in stock. 
Owing to the late depression in trade, our stock has accumulated till every corner of our large establishment is now completely filled up. We therefore invite the public to inspect the largest stock of carriages, wagonettes, brettes, buggies, farmers and express wagons and every other conceivable style of vehicle. The largest and most varied assortment ever seen together in the Southern Hemisphere at prices reduced to command a sale. Stevenson and Elliot, 181 King Street, Melbourne. Weston's Wizard Oil and Magic Pills have cured more wonderful cases of rheumatism, gout, neuralgia, aches, pains, swellings, caked breasts, burns, scolds and salt room upon the human name than all the pretended remedies have since the world began. These great American medicines are composed of vegetable oils, healing gums, roots and herbs and act like a charm upon pain and inflammation. Coming towards the end of the news for September 24, 1880, we're going to have a bit of sports and then entertainment. This piece on the cricket was in the Eastern Districts Chronicle from York, Western Australia. The career of the Australian cricketers in England will have been watched with interest by many of our readers. Until receipt of a recent telegram, they had suffered no defeat, having encountered none but second and third-rate clubs. By the telegram referred to, we find that, after some little difficulty as it appears, an all-England eleven were induced to meet the Australians, made up of the very best gentlemen and players that could be selected, and a match, which is considered to have been the most exciting in the annals of cricket, was played out between the two sides, and decided in the favour of the English team by five wickets in three days. It's the most exciting in the annals of cricket is it's how it's reported, which is probably true at the time because I doubt there's too many matches that have been reported in the annals of cricket at this point in time. The telegram itself is quoted as follows. The Australian eleven have at last sustained a defeat after a splendid struggle with an all-England eleven. This match, which was played on Kennington Oval, commenced on Monday 6 September and concluded on Wednesday. The Englishmen on Monday, when there was a splendid wicket, made in their first innings the magnificent total of 410, with only eight men out, W.G. Grace scoring 152. There were 30,000 people present to witness the play. On Tuesday, the All-England score closed, somewhat abruptly, for 430. The Australians then went in, and on a wet wicket scored 149 in their first innings. Boyle, 36, not out, and Bannerman, 32. In their second innings on the same day, they made 170 with six wickets down, the highest scores being Murdoch's 79, not out, and McDonald's, 48. Next day, they continued their innings in the presence of an immense crowd of spectators and made a splendid stand for a total of 327. Murdoch making the magnificent score of 153, not out, beating Mr Grace's score by one run. The Englishmen then went in and made 57 with the loss of five men, thus winning one of the most exciting matches on record by five wickets. This story of the Australian-English cricket match is, of course, from 1880, and this is just a couple of years before Australia finally defeats England on home soil and the ashes truly begin. 
finishing off with a couple of pieces of entertainment news, and they're talking about leap year rules in the Evoca Mail. It has been suggested that in arranging for the Oddfellows Ball shortly to take place, the committee might give a new feature to the affair by placing it under leap year rules. Several balls thus arranged have been recently held in this and the neighbouring colonies and seem to have caused a good deal of fun. For the time being, the ladies practice all the privileges usually enjoyed by the gentlemen and are also required to perform all the little attentions to partners which are expected from gentlemen. The ladies choose their own partners, take the gentlemen to supper, supply refreshments when required, and a gentleman is not allowed to cross the room without having a lady to escort him. We mention the suggestion as made to us and leave the committee to decide upon the advisability or otherwise of adopting it. Crazy rules indeed, letting women choose their own partners to dance with. Finally, to finish off from the Ballarat star in Victoria, the English Circus Company. There was a good attendance at the circus on Thursday evening when a new and diversified program was produced, including many novel features. Mademoiselle Herbert's danced the Highland Fling with much grace and finish and earned the deserved plaudits of her audience. Messrs Gillam and Herbert were deservedly applauded for their feats of horsemanship and the Adulus brothers excelled themselves in their very clever act on the trapeze. The piece de resistance, however, was Dick Turpin's Ride to York. This equestrian act was put on in Finnish style. Mr King, impersonating the hero, threw into the character much dramatic effect, and we can say that we do not remember any previous occasion on which this favourite piece was so well performed. Tonight, the same programme will be repeated, and for a sterling evening's amusement, we can heartily recommend the performance of the English Circus Company. There you are, folks. If you've got nothing to do tonight, head out and check them out. The English Circus Company. And with that piece of news from the big top, we come to the end of today's bulletin. For September 24, 1880, this was the news. Podcast spoken and edited by Broderick Matthews. All source material is taken from the reference newspapers and found online through the National Library of Australia's Trove website. Links to each of the articles mentioned today can be found in the show notes. The theme music is from Beethoven's Symphony No. 6 and sourced under public domain from newsopen.org. If you enjoyed today's show, make sure to subscribe and review it on iTunes, Spotify or your favourite podcasting app. This was the news can be followed on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. And any email correspondence should be sent to thiswasthenews at gmail.com. Thank you for listening to today's episode. The next episode will be out in a fortnight, released on Thursday, October 8. I'm Broderick Matthews, and this was the news.